Cases EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. We're going to start off with a pair of talks quick hits. The first with Swami on last, that's local anesthetic systemic toxicity a totally preventable, life-threatening, iatrogenic, acute neurologic cardiac catastrophe. And then we'll hear from Emily Austin. We use local anesthetics almost every shift that we work in the emergency room. And I think sometimes when we have that frequent of an exposure to a medication, we don't always think about the harms, about the downsides, about the possible toxicity of the medication. Acetaminophen is another one that we use all the time. And honestly, in the doses that we're using, we don't really worry too much about toxicity caused by us but with the local anesthetics, we really can have iatrogenic harm. So what I wanted to talk about is local anesthetic systemic toxicity or LAST syndrome. This is a life-threatening adverse reaction resulting from local anesthetic reaching significant systemic circulating levels. LAST is pretty rare. It occurs within minutes of injection of the local anesthetic, so we don't really see these delayed problems. There are a number of different ways that this can happen. The common ones are when there's purposeful injection of local anesthetic into the systemic circulation, either errantly or part of a regional block like a beer block. You can get rapid absorption of local anesthetic injected into a highly vascular area. And then you can also get use of local anesthetic in doses that exceed the typical maximum dose or the maximum dose that we should be shooting for. This typically will occur with multiple subcutaneous injections. And then finally, we should be thinking about it with certain procedures that are non-ED procedures, like bronchoscopy or circumcision, tumescent liposuction is another one. And if a patient's coming from an outpatient surgical center with cardiac arrest, this should be very close to the top of our list. All of the local anesthetic agents we use have sodium channel blocking properties. That's how they work to cause analgesia. But when it's in the systemic circulation, they can cause CNS and cardiac problems. The CNS symptoms can often be minor, things like tongue or perioral numbness, paresthesias, restlessness, tinnitus, and muscle fasciculations, but you can also see major symptoms, tonic-clonic seizures, global CNS depression, decreased level of consciousness, and even apnea. Cardiovascular symptoms can also range from the relatively benign, things like maybe a little bit of hypertension or tachycardia, to late signs, peripheral vasodilation, profound hypotension, sinus bradycardia, AV blocks, conduction defects, ventricular dysrhythmias, and even cardiac arrest. And it's important for us to understand that the different local anesthetics can work differently with their toxicity. Lidocaine tends to have neuro effects first, so you get the paresthesias before you get the cardiac problems, whereas bupivacaine can often present with the cardiac effects before any neurologic symptoms present. When it comes to management of LAST, the most important thing is to avoid it developing at all. Prevention of toxicity is the best thing, and it's easy to do as long as we take some necessary precautions. First of all, we have to know and calculate the maximum dose of the local anesthetic agent that we're using prior to administration. And again, this is going to depend on what agent we're using. For lidocaine, if we're using without epi, it's 5 mg per kg, and with epinephrine, we can go up to 7 mg per kg. For bupivacaine, we typically shoot for 2.5 milligrams per kilogram if we're using without epinephrine, and bupivacaine with epinephrine, we can go up to 3 milligrams per kilogram. Finally, we have ropivacaine without epinephrine, 3 mg per kg. Of course, here's the hard part with knowing these dose ranges, is that when we get the bottle of lidocaine or bupivacaine or ropivacaine, it comes as a percent, 1% lidocaine, 2% lidocaine, 0.5% bupivacaine. And these are meaningless numbers. This isn't how we look at any other drug. And so it's important to know what does 1% lidocaine mean? 1% lidocaine means one gram in 100 milliliters. When you break that down, that's 10 milligrams per milliliter. 2% lido, 20 milligrams per milliliter. Bupivacaine, 0.5% is the typical concentration that we see, and that's five milligrams per ml. Once you know the per ml numbers, 
it's easy to calculate your maximum dose. Again, that should be done anytime you use a local anesthetic. The second thing that we can do to prevent toxicity is to always aspirate prior to injection to ensure the drug is not delivered intra-arterial or intravenous. Third, we wanna ask patients about symptoms after injection. Do you feel any perioral numbness? Do you feel like your heart is racing? And then consider serial repairs of large or multiple wounds to minimize the chance for toxicity. The first time I ever saw lidocaine toxicity was a patient who jumped through a plate glass window and had multiple large lacerations. And nobody really thought about the dose of lidocaine we were giving, but because of the number of lacerations and the size of them, we got well above the toxic dose, caused the patient to have generalized tonic-clonic seizures that fortunately they recovered from well. But once you develop last syndrome, whether it be neurologic symptoms or cardiovascular symptoms, we have to start with good basic management. Stop the injection or infusion of agent if you're still giving any agent. Establish IV access if you don't already have it present. Put the patient on a continuous cardiac monitor. And then start with assessing airway and breathing. If the patient only develops some minor neurologic symptoms like paresthesias or numbness, it'll probably resolve if you don't give any more anesthetic and just give supportive care. If they develop seizures, then you should treat with benzodiazepines. And in Goldfrank's toxicology, they specifically recommend benzos over something like propofol because propofol is a cardiac depressant. If the patient starts developing cardiovascular symptoms, you're going to have to be more aggressive, especially if they're getting hypotensive, they're getting tachy or brady dysrhythmias. Consider giving epinephrine to augment cardiac output and improve peripheral vascular tone. You can give bicarbonate infusion for either severe acidosis or to help to stop some of that sodium channel blockade. And if the patient has an arrest, then you're going to give high-quality CPR. We do have a specific antidote, and that's lipid emulsion therapy, or 20% intralipid. The mechanism of action here isn't completely clear, but it's thought that it may work as a lipid sink. It might facilitate redistribution of the local anesthetic from the target organs. Lipid rescue therapy is probably more useful if the patient has bupivacaine toxicity because of the long half-life of bupivacaine. Again, those patients are typically going to present with cardiac symptoms first. Reaching for your lipid emulsion therapy and giving it in those patients is really beneficial. On the other side of it, lidocaine tends to not have much benefit from lipid emulsion therapy because of the short half-life. And by the time you started resuscitation given supportive care, the patient's already probably improving. But obviously, you can call for lipid emulsion therapy in those patients as well. If you're going to give lipid emulsion therapy, the dose is 1 to 1.5 milligrams per kilogram over a minute. You can repeat that bolus every three minutes for a total dose of three mils per kilo. And then you're going to give an infusion of 0.25 mils per kilo per minute. You continue that infusion until the patient is hemodynamically stable for at least 10 minutes. You can increase the infusion by 0.5 mLs per kilo per minute if the blood pressure worsens. And don't forget that if the patient is in cardiac arrest, you're going to have to continue CPR to circulate the drug. One thing we didn't mention in prevention is selection of your agent. Lidocaine is great because you get neural problems before cardiovascular problems, but the half-life is short. It's not ideal for regional blocks or nerve blocks. Bupivacaine is perfect for regional block because it has a long half-life, but that long half-life can also be deleterious when we're talking about toxicity. Ropivacaine, if you have it, might give us the best of both worlds because it does have a long half-life and give you a long block, but it tends to have neurosymptoms before it has cardiovascular symptoms. It has a safer profile than bupivacaine. Let's bring it home with some take-home points. The key in managing last is prevention. Know your dose, know your maximum dose, always aspirate prior to injection, and ask the patient about symptoms. When it comes to lidocaine toxicity, cardiovascular complications are typically preceded by neurological signs and symptoms. If those neuroscience developed, stop administration, place the patient on a monitor, and ready your antidote. For bupivacaine toxicity, it can be sudden and catastrophic. Cardiovascular symptoms are going to hit first, and you might not have any neurologic symptoms at any point. If you're using this drug, undershoot your maximum dose and know where your antidote is. And again, if you have ropivacaine, just replace your bupivacaine use with ropivacaine because it's safer. And then finally, intralipid has been shown to be effective in last syndrome. Administer the drug anytime there are symptoms of hemodynamic compromise. So the most important points when it comes to last have to do with prevention. 
never go close to the toxic dose and aspirate to make sure you're not in a blood vessel. If you do these two things every time, you'll never really need to face this life-threatening neurocardiac disaster. At some hospitals, it's actually pretty easy to avoid the toxic dose because the lidocaine comes packaged in the maximum dose already. So all you need to remember is not to use more than one vial. So speak to your pharmacy to see if you can get your anesthetic packaged in that maximum dose vial. And to dive a bit deeper into lipid emulsion therapy, the indications, the dosing, how to give it, and its downsides, check out episode 90, Low and Slow, that has it all. Next up, we have toxicologist Emily Austin hitting us with a big bad case of sodium nitrite poisoning. A 37-year-old woman is brought into the emergency department by EMS. The story from the paramedics is that she had purchased a bottle of a chemical called sodium nitrite off the internet, and she'd mixed it into a glass of water and then drank it. Her roommate thinks that she found the patient about an hour later. The patient was unresponsive and blue. In the emergency department, the patient's GCS is 3, and she appears cyanotic. Her blood pressure is 80 on 60, and her heart rate's 120. The SAT probe is reading in the 70s, despite a non-rebreather being applied. A full resuscitation is underway. She's given IV fluids, norepinephrine, and an intubation is being prepared. Like in any case of a poisoning, the question is whether there's an antidote that we can offer this patient with a sodium nitrite exposure. And furthermore, what other investigation should an eMERGE provider be ordering? So sodium nitrite is a readily accessible compound that's easily available online, for example. It's a yellowish-white crystalline powder, and it's used as a food preservative or a food additive that can give processed meats a pink color and an antimicrobial agent for meats and cheeses. Sodium nitrite also has uses in the chemical, pharmaceutical, and agricultural industries, And some eMERGE providers are going to be familiar with sodium nitrite from our old cyanide treatment kits. Most often, toxicity from nitrites have been reported from inadvertent exposures to either contaminated well water or from patients who have mistaken the white powder for table salt. And so they really only get exposed to a very small amount. Recently, however, there's been some published case reports and case series of patients who are taking sodium nitrite as part of suicide kits that they've ordered online. And indeed, we've actually seen a slew of these cases come through a poison center in the past several months. Sodium nitrites and other nitrites in general are going to induce toxicity in a couple of ways. First of all, nitrites cause toxicity through vasodilation from vascular smooth muscle relaxation. This can result in vasodilatory shock and a patient will present with profound hypotension. The second way is that nitrites cause toxicity by producing methemoglobin. Nitrites induce the oxidation of iron. Unlike hemoglobin, methemoglobin can't bind oxygen, so essentially a functional anemia arises. The presence of methemoglobin shifts the oxygen-hemoglobin dissociation curve to the left, limiting the ability of the remaining hemoglobin molecules to offload oxygen in the tissue. To diagnose methemoglobinemia, we need to order co-oximetry on either an arterial or venous blood sample. Co-oximeters use multiple wavelengths and are going to be able to measure oxygenated hemoglobin, deoxygenated hemoglobin, as well as carboxyhemoglobin and methemoglobin as a percentage of the total hemoglobin in the sample. So the readout that you're going to get will express these as a percentage. Healthy people should have less than 1.5% methemoglobin. And when exposed to some type of oxidizing agent, for example, sodium nitrite, higher levels of methemoglobin arise. At methemoglobin levels of 10%, patients are going to be cyanosed because methemoglobin is deeply pigmented. But ultimately, they will appear comfortable and not in respiratory distress. Symptoms of a headache, weakness, maybe fatigue, dizziness, or nausea are going to be seen with levels of 20%. And when levels are above 45 to 50% methemoglobin, patients have symptoms of tissue ischemia, like seizures, dysrhythmias, or acidosis. And the patients that we've seen presenting after these suicide kit ingestions, met hemoglobin levels have been between 70 and 90%. And it's worth noting that there is a case report that describes survival after an intentional ingestion where the patient's met hemoglobin level was actually 92.5%. So there are a couple of clinical pearls to keep in mind for met hemoglobinemia. First, chocolate brown colored blood is a characteristic of met hemoglobinemia at the bedside. So this is something that might be remarked upon by whoever is doing a blood draw, and it should prompt somebody to order blood to be sent for co-oximetry. Also, 
Know that pulse oximetry is unreliable in patients with met hemoglobinemia. It will typically show a saturation on the pulse ox reading of usually the mid 80s, although each instrument is different. On to treatment. When a patient's met hemoglobin level is over 20%, treatment includes consideration of the antidote methylene blue. Methylene blue increases the capacity of an endogenous enzyme that we all have to reduce ferric iron or met hemoglobin back to the ferrous or 2 plus iron. Methylene blue should be administered intravenously at a dose of one to two milligrams per kilogram over about five minutes. You can expect the met hemoglobin concentrations to fall within about 10 to 15 minutes. If this decrease doesn't occur, the dose may need to be repeated. Now, we say that the maximum dose of methylene blue is about seven milligrams per kilogram because there are known adverse events with methylene blue. Things like hemolysis and paradoxically, it can induce met hemoglobin itself. So in the cases of these intentional ingestions of large doses of sodium nitrite, where patients are presenting really critically ill, we are suggesting starting with doses of two milligrams per kilogram IV of methylene blue as a push and repeating this dose up to the seven milligram per kilogram max as necessary. Alternative treatments can include packed red blood cell transfusions or exchange transfusions to replace the dysfunctional hemoglobin. In summary, patients with intentional ingestions of sodium nitrite can present with shock and tissue hypoxia secondary to met hemoglobinemia. They are likely to require early and aggressive interventions, including empiric dosing of methylene blue, with the possible need for repeated dosing, in consideration of red blood cell or exchange transfusions. Beautiful summary. Thank you, Dr. Austin. So keep your eye out for sodium nitrite intentional overdoses, get a met hemoglobin level off of VBG ASAP, order up the methylene blue, and get on the phone with your local poison center. Next up, we have the dynamic duo of Hans and Aaron Rosenberg, who'll discuss best practices when it comes to post-intubation sedation and analgesia, which I'm embarrassed to admit, as the literature clearly shows, ED docs don't do a very good job at. So let's hear about the latest so that we can provide stellar post-intubation care. Welcome to another EM Cases Quick Hits and CGEM collaboration to highlight one of the latest Just the Facts articles. I'm joined today by the smartest person I've ever met in my life, Dr. Erin Rosenberg. She happens to be an intensivist at the Ottawa Hospital, and also she's my wife. Welcome, Erin. Thanks for having me, and I'm really not sure about that smartest person you've ever met in your life, but we'll take it for now. So this episode, we are going to talk about her article, as long as with a couple of other co-authors, Just the Facts, Post-Intubation Sedation in the Emergency Department. Now, when we think about post-intubation sedation, we naturally think about sedating medications. But why is this not the first thing that we should think about? So I think it's important to think about sedation, but also to think about pain management in the ICU. And after we, we intubate people, we know that patients in the ICU experience pain. And so by using only sedatives without any analgesics, we just mask our ability to detect pain and therefore we can't actually treat it. So what we talk about in the article and what is recommended by the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Pain, Agitation and Sedation Guidelines is that we use an assessment-driven protocol-based approach that emphasizes pain assessment and treatment first, so then we can assess and treat pain before actually sedating people. I'm an emergency physician, so why do I care about post-intubation sedation? Isn't that your issue and the ICU's issue? So it's funny you should say that because we do know that unfortunately post-intubation sedation and analgesia are often not done as well as they could be in the emergency department. In fact, depending on what study you look at, anywhere from 40 to 75% of patients in the emergency department don't actually receive adequate sedation or, or analgesia. We know that both under and over sedation and analgesia are harmful. So we, we don't want people experiencing pain due to the physiologic and psychologic effects. But we also know that over sedating people can lead to worse outcomes as well, such as longer time in the vent, longer time in the ICU. So that's why I think it's really important to get this right and to get it right, right off the bat. And I am being facetious here. Obviously, at my center, we actually have patients who spend, fortunately, a very short amount of time in the emergency department post-intubation. But there are many centers in Canada and worldwide where this may be hours upon hours to even sometimes days. Fine, you've convinced me. I need to think about post-intubation sedation, analgesia first. 
if you had your choice of agent, what would be your preferred menu of medications that you would use in order to sedate your patient post-intubation? So as we talked about already, we want to use an analgesia first approach, meaning we're going to treat pain first. And so the first thing I would reach for would be an opioid. And a lot of this is going to be center dependent and really a cultural thing. There's no data that one opioid is better than another. In my center, we use a lot of hydromorphone. Fentanyl is another common option that can be used. I actually tend to bolus my opioids up front rather than just starting an infusion right off the bat so that I can be sure I get pain well controlled and get it well controlled quickly. And then I use infusions to maintain sedation. When I think about sedatives, usually my go-to is going to be propofol, which is which is what the guidelines recommend, is either propofol or dexmedetomidine, which we'll talk about in a minute. The only time I don't use propofol is in a patient who's really horribly hypotensive uh, and can't tolerate propofol. And then in terms of dexmedetomidine, we talk about it in the article, and I do, I think it's a great drug. I use it a lot in the ICU. It really wouldn't be my first choice drug for a patient in the emergency department who I'm initially sedating. Actually, tell me a little bit more about that, because we are quite familiar with opioids in the emergency department. We're quite familiar with propofol, but really not that much with dexmedetomidine. In fact, I can barely say it. So can you tell me a little bit more about it? So in terms of why it's not my first choice in the emergency department is that it it really is for what, what we typically use it for is in the peri-extubation period. So I'm getting a patient ready to be extubated, but their sedation's not quite right. It's a drug that can give you a very light level of sedation and keep people relatively awake and interactive while still maintaining their comfort. It's nice because it has co-analgesic properties, so you can use less opioids if you're using dexmedetomidine. So those are some reasons I think it's a good drug. I will on occasion start it right off the bat when a patient's intubated, but only if I'm doing a very short-term intubation. In terms of how I actually start it, so in the ICU, because I'm usually starting it in the setting of a patient who's already been sedated and I'm just transferring them over from usually propofol to dexmedetomidine, we don't use a bolus and we just initially start the drug at sort of a medium level. I would often start it at 0.5 mics per kilo per hour and then titrate up or down from there as I'm titrating off my other drug, which usually is propofol. In terms of side effects to look out for, the big ones are hypotension and bradycardia. And to be honest, you do see a fair amount of bradycardia with it, but a lot of patients don't become hypotensive even when they're bradycardic. And so I let patients be bradycardic in that situation. Great. Thank you very much for teaching me about that medication. And for one more Rosenberg. Make sure to listen to EM cases and read CGEM. So cute. So post-intubation sedation, or better phrased as post-intubation analgesia and sedation, since analgesia should always come first. Remember that under-treatment or over-treatment of pain and agitation in the ED may increase the likelihood of the patient developing acute delirium. Now, that's not good because delirium in this context has been associated with an increased mortality rate in septic patients and may prolong ICU stay, as Dr. Rosenberg mentioned. Another practical point when it comes to post-intubation care from episode 55 with Weingart and Himmel, for patients who are aggressively attempting to pull out their ET tube and require immediate sedation and analgesia, consider ketamine, like 50 milligrams push in your average adult, and then 15 milligrams every 5 to 10 minutes as needed, titrated to effect. You could use ketamine-only sedation and analgesia from the beginning and avoid the complications of opioids altogether. And a point to emphasize about benzodiazepines, benzos in particular increase the incidence of delirium and prolong the time on the ventilator and so are not favored as a first line for sedation. If you choose to use benzodiazepines, again, be sure to control pain first with, say, fentanyl before any benzo is administered and use small doses of a short-acting benzo like 1 to 2 milligrams of midazolam. We'll have an infographic created by Dr. Rosenberg in the show notes with all the dosages and drug options clearly laid out. All right, next up, we have the rebel himself, Dr. Salim Rizai, bring us the best of Rebel EM on a topic that we have covered a few years ago on the Journal Jam podcast, but that continues to stir controversy between EM docs and ophthalmologists. 
There's some new data since the Journal Jam, so let's hear what Dr. Rosé has for the update on this topic. But before that, a message from our sponsor, Metricade. The Metricade system is partially tech and partially a professional service. The web-based tool allows me to let Metricade know exactly how I want to be scheduled. The technology and the expert schedulers work together to produce a schedule that somehow meets the needs of the entire department filling every shift while still letting me work more of my shifts that I want and fewer of the shifts that I don't. When you have a problem, there's an expert scheduler answering the phone who probably fill 2,000 to 4,000 ED shifts a month. They know all the intricacies of ED scheduling. This is not an automated push-button schedule. The technology is a tool to help an expert build a schedule to suit your needs exactly. Hey there, EM Cases listeners. Salim Raziah here from Rebel EM. And for this best of Rebel EM, we're going to be talking about corneal abrasions and short-term topical tetracaine. So the paper we're going to talk about is Shipment S et al. Short-term topical tetracaine is highly efficacious for the treatment of pain caused by corneal abrasions, a double-blind randomized clinical trial published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine 2020. Now, anyone who's had a corneal abrasion knows how painful it can be. Unfortunately, traditional analgesics, things like ibuprofen, acetaminophen, opiates, etc., are really ineffective in relieving that pain. Topical anesthetic drugs can be not just diagnostic of superficial eye pathology, but are also routinely used prior to slit lamp examination. They provide immediate relief in the emergency department and have been shown to be effective and safe. Very limited evidence has shown significant adverse events from this practice as short-term outpatient therapy. Now, the biggest concern with the use of topical anesthetic agents as outpatient therapy is delayed healing which is what most evidence is focused on. This can occur with long-term use, but has not really been seen in studies of short-term use of topical anesthetics. Use of short-term topical anesthetics further has the potential to reduce the use of opioids for analgesia for this indication. Now, recent published literature on topical anesthetics for this indication have focused on the harms, but there's very scant literature detailing their benefit. So the authors of this paper were trying to answer a simple question. How effective is 24-hour home use of topical tetracaine in patients with uncomplicated corneal abrasion compared to placebo? This was a single-center prospective, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trial of adults with uncomplicated corneal abrasions, and all patients received polymixin B trimethoprim sulfate with instructions to instill two drops every four hours into the affected eye. And then they also received hydrocodone acetaminophen, the 7.5 slash 325 milligram variety, 12 tablets, and instructed to use one or two tablets as needed every six hours for breakthrough pain. The patients got randomized one-to-one to to topical 0.5% tetracaine, one drop every 30 minutes as needed for 24 hours, compared to topical placebo, one drop every 30 minutes as needed over 24 hours. And this placebo was actually artificial tear solution. The primary outcome was overall numeric rating scale pain score measured at 24 to 48 hours of ED follow-up from 0 to 10 centimeters. Secondary outcomes included the amount of hydrocodone ingested for breakthrough pain and any adverse events. Ultimately, 111 adults were in the final analysis. The baseline pain rating was 7 in both groups. Now, if we look at the overall numeric rating scale pain score at 24 to 48 hours, for tetracaine, this was 1 out of 10. For placebo, this was 8 out of 10. And this was obviously very statistically significant. The median hydrocodone tablet use in the tetracaine group was 1 tablet. In placebo, was 7 tablets. Complication rates, tetracaine 3.6%, placebo 11%. And then finally, small residual corneal abrasion on repeat ED slit lamp examination for tetracaine was 18% and for placebo was 11%. This finding, however, was not statistically significant. Now, there's some big limitations with this study. So 90 out of the 111 patients who were supposed to follow up with ophthalmology at one week, they didn't. 
And so it's possible that there were some complications that were missed or that developed later. Secondly, the study is too small and not powered for rare adverse events, so we can't make any comments on that. And I think one of the biggest limitations here that people need to understand is they excluded patients with large or complicated corneal abrasions, penetrating eye injuries, contact lens wears, patients with previous corneal surgery in the affected eye, greater than 36 hours after injury, grossly contaminated foreign bodies, and coexisting ocular infections. So therefore, the results of this trial cannot be extrapolated to these groups. That's a very important set of exclusion criteria that needs to be remembered. And so this brings me to my final point, which is ensuring appropriate follow-up is the key in these patients. This can be done by calling an ophthalmologist to schedule the appointment or simply having the patient come back to the emergency department in 24 to 48 hours for a follow-up appointment. I personally always get the phone number of these patients and call them to ensure they are not using the drops past 48 hours and that they're doing better. So what's the clinical take-home message of this study? Well, 24 hours of topical 0.5% tetracaine for uncomplicated corneal abrasions reduced pain scores at 24 to 48 hours was opioid sparing for breakthrough pain compared to placebo. We would need larger trials to rule out rare adverse events, but adding this study to previous data, it seems that 24 to 48 hours of topical anesthetic use for uncomplicated corneal abrasions is safe. It's important to emphasize the need for follow-up, short-term use, and return precautions in these patients to avoid any long-term use of these medications. Excellent appraisal of the study and bang on take-home points. Thank you, Dr. Rizai. Now, one thing I need to say is that I really hope no one is prescribing Percocet for corneal abrasions. Totally unnecessary, and some of those patients are sure to develop an opioid use disorder. Second, I just want to emphasize that this study was nowhere near large enough to detect the relatively rare but potentially devastating complications of topical anesthetic use. Now, granted, things like corneal ulceration, thinning, and even perforation of the cornea have only been reported with chronic abuse of topical anesthetics. So, although this study is reassuring that tetracaine is effective and probably safe for the first 24 hours after a corneal abrasion, we still don't know for sure if it is completely safe. And I have ophthalmologists reminding me of that often because they are the ones who do see the rare complications of prolonged use. All right, next up, we have at ECG cases, Jesse McLaren. In the spirit of spaced repetition and multimodal learning, this quick hit is a follow-up to the two most recent ECG cases blog posts, which cover the mnemonics for ST depression and ST elevation. Those are ST depressed and ST elevations. So take it away, Dr. McLaren. Every shift, we see ECGs from multiple patients with potentially ischemic symptoms. And the question we usually ask ourselves is, is there STEMI criteria or not? But a recent study in the International Journal of Cardiology found that of patients with a discharge diagnosis of STEMI, only 35% met computer-measured STEMI criteria on the first ECG. One reason was technological error, which is why we should never trust the computer interpretation. A second reason was dynamic ST changes, which is why we do serial ECGs. But two other reasons were either subtle ST elevation with reciprocal ST depression or pronounced anterior ST depression from posterior MI. In other words, signs of occlusion MI were present but were missed by the STEMI criteria. As authors concluded, Clinicians need to be aware of this major limitation and address it by more holistic interpretation of the ECG. So how can we be more holistic? First of all, we need to look at the ST segments in context. The ST segment is the interval between the QRS complex representing ventricular depolarization and the T wave representing ventricular repolarization. So to evaluate the ST segment, we need to look at the QRS that precedes it and the T waves that follow. If the QRS is abnormal, this can cause secondary ST and T wave changes discordant to the QRS. So left bundle branch block, or LVH, cause discordant anterior ST elevation and discordant lateral ST depression. Whereas right bundle branch block and RVH cause discordant anterior ST depression. If the QRS is normal, then the ST changes that follow it are primary changes, 
and their etiology can be determined by their height, morphology, and distribution, as well as the QRS that precedes it and the T-wave that follows. ST elevation from hyperkalemia is associated with prolonged PR and QRS intervals and T-waves, whereas ST depression from hypokalemia is associated with prolonged QT interval and pronounced U-waves. ST elevation from pericarditis is diffuse and concave without preceding Q-waves and without abnormal T-waves following it, and without any reciprocal change other than AVR. ST elevation from early repolarization is also concave, with no Q-waves preceding it, no hyperacute or inverted T-waves following it, and no reciprocal change. Occlusion MI, on the other hand, can cause concave or convex ST elevation, preceded by Q-waves or loss of R-waves, followed by hyperacute or inverted T-waves, and associated with reciprocal ST depression or T-wave inversion. But this complex and dynamic process has been reduced to ST segment elevation. As a couple of cardiologists wrote a decade ago in the Annals of Non-Invasive Electrocardiology, differential classification of acute MI into ST and non-ST elevation is not valid or rational. So after first putting the ST segment into context, we should then look at the presence and reciprocity of ST elevation and depression. First, ST elevation and ST depression can reflect the same injury current. So if you see regional ST depression, you should look to see if it's reciprocal to subtle ST elevation. For example, if there is ST depression isolated to the inferior leads, look for subtle lateral ST elevation or hypercute T waves from a lateral occlusion MI. Or if you see subtle regional ST elevation, you should look for reciprocal ST depression. For example, if there's subtle inferior ST elevation or hyperacute T waves, look for reciprocal ST depression in AVL to identify inferior occlusion MI. Secondly, one or the other may appear on the 12-lead ECG. So you may see ST elevation with or without reciprocal ST depression. For example, proximal LID occlusion causes anterolateral ST elevation with inferior reciprocal ST depression but mid or distal LAD occlusion doesn't affect the lateral wall, so it won't produce any inferior reciprocal ST depression, and can even produce inferior ST elevation if the LAD wraps around the apex. Or there may be regional ST depression without any ST elevation on the 12 lead. For example, posterior MI produces ST depression isolated to the anterior leads, which is reciprocal to ST elevation that is often very subtle on posterior leads. Subendocardial ischemia, on the other hand, can result in diffuse ST depression with ST elevation in AVR, but AVR does not correspond to any vascular territory. This pattern is not ischemic ST elevation with reciprocal ST depression, but rather global ischemic ST depression with reciprocal ST elevation. The differential for this pattern therefore includes anything that severely disrupts the supply-demand balance including acute coronary occlusion, triple vessel disease, PE, dissection, GI bleed, or sepsis. Finally, ECGs with secondary ST changes can develop superimposed ischemia. If left bundle branch block produces discordant ST changes, look for concordant ST elevation, concordant ST depression in anterior leads, or excessively discordant ST elevation, defined by ST elevation greater than 25% of the preceding S-wave. If right bundle branch block produces discordant anterior ST depression, look for concordant ST elevation from anterior occlusion MI or excessively discordant ST depression from posterior occlusion MI. In summary, when we're looking at an ECG from a patient with ischemic symptoms, there may or may not be STEMI criteria, but the real question is, does the patient have an acute coronary occlusion? We can help answer that by looking at the ECG holistically. First by putting the ST segment in context of the QRS that precedes it and the T-wave that follows it. Secondly, by looking for ST elevation and reciprocal ST depression. And thirdly, by recognizing that one or the other may appear on the 12-lead ECG. For multiple examples of the differential for ST elevation and ST depression and how they relate to one another during occlusion MI, check out the two recent posts on ECG cases. Thank you, Dr. McLaren. The last quick hit is a very important one considering the news that there have been several emergency doctor deaths by suicide related to the pandemic.
Dr. Lorna Breen, the medical director of the ED at New York Presbyterian Allen Hospital, died by suicide in April. And Dr. Corrine Dion of Granby, Quebec, died by suicide in January. Doctors die by suicide at twice the rate of the general population at the best of times, and it seems that the pandemic has perhaps made that rate even higher. So it's of utmost importance that if you or anyone you work with show signs of depression to get help. There's no shame in this. So Dr. Bob Maunder is the chief of psychiatry at Sinai Health Systems in Toronto, and he's going to outline some simple tips on staying sane and mentally healthy during the pandemic that I myself have adapted. Together, we really can prevent our colleagues from spiraling into a deep depression and dying from suicide. Here's an approach to coping that is adapted from a model developed by Susan Folkman and Stephen Greer. The basic outline is simple. There are three steps that go in order. First, do what you can to solve the problem. Second, do things that feel better about the things you can't fix. Third, take steps to come to terms with the things you can't feel better about. I'll break it down. Step one, fix what you can. Problem solving comes naturally to many people. Still, at times of stress, we tend to forget what we already know, so it may be helpful to be reminded. Here are the basics. Have a plan. Anticipate challenges so you can be prepared. Make sure it is a problem worth fixing, because problem solving takes effort. Ask yourself, why is this a problem? Would fixing it reduce my stress? Break a big problem down into parts that are easier to solve. Then choose a strategy. Address the pieces in sequence, or perhaps do the easy bits first. Try solutions that have worked before. If your first solution doesn't work, consider alternatives. What would someone else do in this situation? It might help to get advice from a trusted source, but avoid collecting opinions from too many people. If this is a problem that is going to recur, consider learning new skills or getting the knowledge you lack. Get help from a buddy or your team. Sometimes a team can help fix a problem much more easily than an individual. So effective communication is also part of problem solving. Remember that communication goes two ways. Effective communication involves being clear, respectful, and assertive, but just as importantly, it requires listening well. So that is step one, problem solving. But many problems can't be solved or for whatever reason, continue to cause bad feelings. So step two is to do things to feel better. I think the most powerful force against distress is the support you can find in your personal relationships. So enjoy, maintain and repair your closest relationships. Accept support. Try not to tough it out alone. Take advantage of enjoyable times with others when they're available. Stressful times sometimes strain relationships. If irritability and conflict are interfering, it is worth the effort to set things right. Avoid blame and criticism. Being right is often not as important as being connected. Provide support to others too. Helping others feels good. Look after your physical health. Establish a routine of moderate exercise and healthy diet. Look after your sleep. Avoid using substances to feel better, even if your stress makes you feel like you deserve it. Get outdoors when you can. Green spaces reduce stress. Attitude makes a difference. Keeping a sense of humor and sharing it with others helps. Find the positives when you can and cultivate gratitude, as long as it feels authentic. Forcing positive thinking is not of much use, though. Denial is not a great strategy, but distraction can help for a while. I have left relaxation skills and stress-reducing activities like yoga or tai chi or mindfulness meditation lower on the list. These can be very beneficial if you're willing to invest the time that is required to develop a practice, but they aren't for everyone. If you're interested, there are lots of resources online. Some people like apps that help with meditation and whatnot. 
I'll finish step two with one way to build healthy habits that follows the mnemonic MAPS, M-A-P-S. I learned this from my colleague, Josh Rosenblatt. MAPS stands for Mastery, Altruism, Pleasure, and Silence. It is a reminder that every day you should do one thing you are good at, one thing that is good for others, one thing that feels good, and one thing that allows you some reflective silence. Now, finally, we have step three, which is meaning-focused coping. You won't usually get this far. Often we stop at problem solving. If you develop habits that help you to feel better, that may be good enough, so you can stop at step two. But sometimes we experience suffering that endures and can neither be solved nor improved by our best efforts to feel better. Those are times when we need to reflect on purpose and values. Step three is all about paying attention to what matters to you. Let's start with acceptance. Naturally, what you have to accept depends on the situation. Maybe you are facing a great loss, or maybe you've made a mistake that is hard to accept. First, try to see things just as they are. This may mean, to give one example, accepting that a person or something else you value highly is gone. If that is the case, your challenge is to work through your grief. That takes time and requires tolerating the strong feelings that go with it, often sadness, guilt, or anger. Strong feelings often come in waves that gradually get easier, but may persist at some level for a long time, sometimes forever. On the other hand, if you're struggling with a situation in which you have played a role in what has happened, keep an open mind to accepting your part. This requires some wisdom. Some people are all too ready to blame themselves for things they don't control or haven't done. Self-blame is not helpful, but taking responsibility for mistakes and forgiving yourself can be. It may help to reflect on the purpose of what you do. Why did you choose to work in healthcare? Why is it valuable to you? What is your value to others? For some people, focusing on meaning and values involves their religious faith. Only you know what matters most to you. The positives will start to emerge over time and will help to engage in meaningful activities and in meaningful relationships. Did you notice that the power of teamwork and relationships are included in all three steps? That's how important relationships are. So those are the three steps to coping with anything big. First, fix what you can. Second, do things to feel better about whatever still feels bad. Third, pay attention to what means the most to you. Needless to say, if you're having troubles that go beyond coping with life stresses, such as feeling hopeless or suicidal, reach out to get help from mental health services. I hope this helps. All right, let's do a quick review of all the quick hits on this podcast. First, last, is an iatrogenic, life-threatening, acute neurologic cardiac adverse reaction resulting from infiltration of local anesthetic that enters the systemic circulation. The best treatment is prevention. Preventative measures include aspirating before injection of the anesthetic to ensure that the needle is not in a blood vessel and using less than the toxic dose of that anesthetic. Treatment, in addition to withdrawal of anesthetic and usual CABs, may include epinephrine, bicarb, and lipid emulsion therapy. Next was Emily Austin talking about sodium nitrite, which is a yellow-white crystal powder food preservative additive that has recently showed up on the internet as suicide kits. Massive overdose patients get cyanosis, low oxygen saturation despite maintained respiratory status, and chocolate brown colored blood. Get your methemoglobin level off of VBG ASAP and look up the signs to expect at the different levels. For intentional suicide attempts of sodium nitrite, the suggested dosing of methylene blue is 2 mg per kilogram push, repeated if the methemoglobin level has not decreased at 15 minutes to a maximum of 7 mg per kilogram, and consider red cell or exchange transfusions. 
Next was post-intubation sedation and analgesia. We should use a stepwise approach to analgesia first, post-intubation sedation, with fentanyl or hydromorph to start, then propofol or dexmedetomidine, and only if needed, then consider small doses of midazolam or ketamine. Next, we talked about tetracaine drops every 30 minutes as needed for 24 hours after an uncomplicated corneal abrasion, which seems to be effective for pain control in the first day or two, but studies aren't really big enough to show the harms. And if you're going to give your patients topical anesthetics for corneal abrasions, make sure they are simple, uncomplicated corneal abrasions, give them only enough to last for 24 hours, and ensure follow-up and return precautions. On our ECG cases quick hit, we talked about how MI is not just about ST deviation. Make sure you interpret the ST segments in the context of the preceding Q wave and the T wave that follows, and look for the presence of reciprocity of ST elevation and depression. Finally, a three-step approach to coping during COVID is first, do what you can to solve the problem, then do things that make you feel better about the things you can't fix. And thirdly, pay attention to what means the most to you, taking steps to come to terms with the things that you can't feel better about. All the details are in the show notes if you or a colleague is in need. And just a quick announcement, because the EM Cases course sold out in just a few hours with dozens of people on the waiting list, we're planning a virtual EM Cases conference with the best EM speakers in the world for November, So please do keep your ears open and your eyes peeled for more details. Well, that about wraps it up for this EM Quick Hits podcast. Until next time, take it easy. (laughs) 